Good morning. Merry Christmas. Isn't this a fun season? Okay, a few of us. Nice. It is about 10 days away from, or maybe five days away from when I stop listening to Christmas music, but I've listened to it since October 30th, and I am not ashamed, okay? Yes. So welcome to Church of the Valley. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here on a momentous day. We are finishing the book of John after three and a half years. If you've been attending for the past many decades, the past five or so years, the past year, or maybe the past few months, or this is your first time, we're glad that you're here because this book that we've been studying has been an opportunity for us to grow and understand who Jesus really is. This letter has been a goal of mine as a pastor and teacher to preach through for many years, and this letter does an amazing job of its purpose of pointing out and confirming and building the case for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah the anointed one, the one spoken about throughout the Old Testament, and that life is found in his name. Today, we are going to conclude this letter as we teach through all of chapter 21, and for someone who likes to do maybe half of one verse, this is going to be a bit difficult for me, but I promise you we're going to unpack it. Next year, we're going to begin the book of Acts after this letter, which at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus' ascension takes place because at the end of John, we see his resurrection and his showing himself to many people. Today, we will see two subjects that go hand in hand with our Christianity, and they do not save us, but because we are saved, if you've called on the name of the Lord, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, God allows us to be a part of his saving and sanctifying of others. We will study fishing and shepherding today. Fishing and shepherding. And how many of you, when you thought you were coming to church, thought you were going to get a zoology lesson? Anyone? Fishing and shepherding. And today, you're going to see the symbolism of what the disciples would do once Jesus would ascend back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. We'll do verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. After Jesus appearing to Thomas, which we studied last week, we see on this new occasion of Jesus appearing to seven of his disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and where the next verse will tell us why they gathered there. Here's what it says in verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Peter said, and they told him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. While they had been seeing Jesus alive at a few different situations, it didn't mean that they didn't stop continuing to do their jobs and provide for themselves and their families. While apostles, they were told to wait and not leave the area just yet, because as we read in Luke last week, they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he would descend on the disciples who would become apostles. That evening, Peter went to fish, and I don't know, this kind of feels like shade. John made known that Peter caught nothing. (laughs) See, I don't resonate at all with Peter, because every time I've gone fishing, I've caught a big fish. See? (laughs) To be fair, I've gone fishing one time, and it was with Kyle and Ray and a buddy John, and the buddy who took us was a master fisherman, and he pretty much did everything for me. And I think there's something about that. There's some symbolism with what God does when it comes to fishing. Verse 4. Early in the morning, 
Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. The next morning, early it says, Jesus stood at the shore, even though they did not realize it was Jesus. And for me, maybe I get that it was dark and they didn't recognize him, but I don't really understand this because I would be on high alert. He's shown up in locked rooms, but John points out that they, for whatever reason, did not realize it was Jesus. Symbolically, if I want to think outside of the box, I'd say that this is a good example of us today. God speaks through His Word. He gives us circumstances where we deny, fail to acknowledge, or refuse to believe that God is involved in something that we're going through. Verse 5, He called out to them, friends, haven't you had any fish? No, they answered. Again, they didn't recognize Him or His voice. Have you caught any fish? No, which we don't really get tone from this. We don't really know if Jesus was making fun of them. We don't know. But they definitely answered his question, no, the fish aren't biting. Verse 6, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Jesus gave them a command, and they did what he said, and the fish not only started biting, they started jumping into the nets, it seems like. And I believe John points this out for two reasons. One, it's what happened. And two, it shows Jesus' power over natural order of things. Even fish obey his will. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Most of us would take something off to jump into the water. Peter was probably naked and then he put something on and he jumped into the water. Weird. But John, in particular here, once again, doesn't refer to himself by name, but he does refer to the disciple whom Jesus loved as the one who was involved in different situations regarding Jesus. John was the first to notice that it was Jesus and announced, it is the Lord, and John announces, and Peter is ready to jump out of the boat and get to Jesus. Now, for all the dumb things that Peter does in Scripture— not wanting Jesus to just wash his feet, but wash all his body, uh, cutting off the ear of the guy who attempted to arrest Jesus. Peter was a doer, that's for sure. But as we will see later on in this passage, his work was not what justified him. He couldn't make up for the bad that he had done. It required God's intervention for him, just like it does for all of us. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat. Lower, uh, towing the net full of fish, for they were far from the shore. They were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. I do think that not only did this happen but that John included this portion not to just show off Jesus' power over fish who seem to listen to God better than people do. See, Jesus was the OG Aquaman, for the record. Huh. Yeah, no one likes Aquaman except for Jason Momoa. No, John included this because it was symbolic of the ministry that the apostles would have. They, not because of their wisdom or their ability, but because of God's Word, commission and commands, His disciples would then fish for people. 
And men, women, and children would come to Christ through the power of the Spirit. A couple of things I want to bring to your attention in these few verses is that Jesus had a breakfast barbecue set up already with burning coals, fish, and bread, and Jesus had already provided this as they came to shore. Also, John points out that Peter, who went to retrieve all the fish, brought back how many? 153, which is a very specific number, don't you think? Why does John use such a specific number? Well, the symbolism and assumptions that I've read that many people have brought up really are not very compelling or convincing. About the only one that I appreciate is that an early church father known as Jerome in the fourth century theorized that 153 represented the different types of fish that were known in the first century. We know there are plenty more fish than that now, but in the first century, Greek understood about 153, representing that the gospel is available to any and every type of race, color, and creed. Well, I don't know for a fact that 153 represented that. It was affirmed by theologians that I respect, like Augustine. So let's be clear. The gospel is for everyone. It truly is. There isn't a person on earth that has outsinned the cross, which sounds great. It means mercy and grace are available to you. But what about when that mercy and grace gets extended to someone that we don't think deserve it? The definition of mercy is to not get what you deserve. And grace, the definition is to get what you don't deserve. And far too often we believe God did this for us while concluding he shouldn't do it for others. The beauty of the gospel is that compared to God, you and me, none of us are owed a thing but wrath and death. Yet God in his power and grace gives us right standing with him. Not because of what we have done, but what because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we are effectively given Jesus' reward because He was perfect and not our own deserving of wrath, even though we are sinful. This is good news. And to truly understand grace is to acknowledge that no one deserves it, even those of us who have already received it. It's not by just thanking God for grace. It is by being grateful enough that God, to God to know that God can give it to whomever He chooses. Let me tell you a story that Jesus shares in Matthew 20. It's a bit of a parable. He says it this way, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Denarius was known as a day's wages. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and then go on to the first. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. 
But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The thing that I hope we get from this is that none of us deserve grace. So none of us should assume that we deserve it more than someone else. Or be frustrated with someone who has received grace who perhaps has not worked in your mind as hard as you have. Grace is not earned. Grace is a gift from God. Merry Christmas. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus continues to serve his disciples even after his resurrection. And as John states, this is the third appearance to the disciples. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. There's so much here, and I'm going to try to keep it concise because Christmas Eve is on Friday. First thing, Jesus asked Peter to do, do you love me more than these? What are these? Well, different theologians have different guesses, and some believe these mean the fish that are being caught, which could represent the world or other believers or even Peter's comfort and his profession. A case could be made for all of that. But I'd say that whatever these that Jesus says are, the contrast needs to be that the love for Christ is preeminent. So I'll let these be whatever you want. Is it the new truck you got? Is it the new job? Is it your beautiful baby? Is it the vacation you're going to get to take? Is it your stock options? Love for Christ must be preeminent. I used to think that all you have to do is love Jesus. In fact, I probably said that. I actually know I said that. All you have to do is love Jesus. The problem with that statement is, which Jesus? Because even though when I said it, I implied the Jesus of the Bible, ironically, not everyone who says they're a Christian gives a flip about the Bible. Imagine that. Loving Jesus is not a junk drawer of emotion for a deity that one cannot see. Loving Jesus has to do with pursuing who Jesus says that he is, and not just trying to do what Jesus did, but to receive the fact that Jesus accomplished what you could not do for yourself. So what are these? I don't know. But I think it's safe to assume it had to do with anything that could compete for your affection over Jesus. It's okay to love things that are not Jesus, but your love for Jesus ought to not be competitive with anything else. So Jesus asked Peter a first time, do you love me? And Peter says, of course. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. I believe what Jesus meant regarding Peter being reinstated as an apostle was the truth of the word, the unpacking of the scriptures filtered through the gospel message was something that Peter was expected to do as an apostle. Lamb is a young sheep. It's under a year old, and Jesus uses this term because we are sheep. I'm a sheep. 
Some of you remember. That's fantastic. And babies in the faith need more care. They need more training. They need more hand-holding. They require more patience. They need to be fed because they don't know how to feed themselves. So Jesus says to Peter, your application of loving me is to feed, point back to, equip these lambs in the truth of my word. Church, it's easy to see the correlation between lambs and our children. It's part of the reason why we invest so much in our children's. We have a children's director who's pretty amazing, in my opinion. I'm just a little biased. We have a family pastor who's pretty amazing, and I'm also a little biased there, too. And we believe that every parent needs some encouragement and resources to help equip their children in the Word of God. But I think this goes beyond the similarities of baby sheep and a child. I believe Jesus made this a lot more broad, meaning those who are young in the faith, those who do not know how to feed themselves, those who still speak proudly, those who are still emphasizing things that God doesn't emphasize in His Word. This is a lot broader than just young. And Peter and all the apostles were entrusted with the charge of feeding these babies, feeding these lambs, so they could grow up in the Word of God and be nourished by the truth. Feeding lambs is the beginning of helping people think biblically. And I really think that we may, this may be one of the best things that we can do for any and everyone is to hope that they understand this. Thinking biblically means to go to God's Word in context regarding situations rather than your own wisdom or Google. It's okay to Google verses, but I wouldn't go to Google to figure out the, the big issues of life when God has given us His very words. Again, verse 16, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Again, Jesus asked Peter about loving him, but what, does, what name does he use when he's talking to Peter? He calls him Simon, son of John, his natural name, the name that was given to him since birth not the name that Jesus had given him, Peter. Why? Don't know. But possibly because Jesus wanted to show Peter that he has changed, that he has a new name, that he is a new creation in Christ, like all of us are when we commit to Jesus. Jesus asked Peter a second time, do you love me? And Peter says again that he knows that he does. So Jesus replies with, tend or take care of my sheep. Peter, the disciple who had become an apostle with the other disciples who had become apostles, had a high calling of taking care of Jesus' people, which is known as the church, for sharing the burden of spiritual responsibility with the Lord. Now, ultimately, God is the one who does the work through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life and the apostles' lives, and the apostles' yet still had to put in effort as they were representing Christ. For myself and the other elders and leaders in the church today, while we are not apostles, all right, we are not apostles, not lowercase, not uppercase, we are not apostles, nor do we or should we ever pretend like we have that kind of authority. But we do have a responsibility to tend to the sheep within the church of God's, of the living God. 
Now, do we do that correctly all the time? Uh, everyone look at an elder. Elders, raise your hands. There's Mike. There's Chris. There's Kyle. Where's Mark? Mark, there's Mark's hand. Where's Daniel? There's, yeah, Daniel's hiding. All right, I want you to look at an elder as they raise their, keep your hands up. All right, here's the question. Do we always tend to the sheep correctly in the church? As you're looking at these elders, here's the answer. No. Okay, you guys can put your hands down. We don't. We don't always do it correctly. We're valuable people. But we as leaders attempt to hold one another accountable to what we believe God's Word says when it comes to shepherding and caring for the sheep. And even though we don't do it perfectly, we pursue the perfect one. Amen? Amen. Sometimes tending to sheep means allowing people to make their own mistakes. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it just means being there for them after the sheep has skinned their knee and just be there to bandage them up without telling them, I told you so. Sometimes it means sharing a hard truth that might not be heard but still needs to be said. Sometimes it's choosing the biblical thing to do rather than the nice thing to do. Sometimes. But Peter, while being reinstated, was being told that caring for God's sheep was high on his priority list from the Lord. It was high on his job description from the Lord. Verse 17, the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Once again, for the third time, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, and this time John points out that Peter was grieved or hurt because he's asked three times. To Peter, he thought that Jesus was calling out an insincerity of love for the Lord, but really this was done three times to emulate Peter's denial of Jesus three times. Also, it points out the depth in which love for Christ is needed in order to obey and follow. It's one thing to say, yeah, I, I go to church. I read the Bible when I feel like it. I give in the offering when I feel compelled. It's another thing to say, I'm going to give up my life because my priority list is now the Lord's. And as we'll read in a moment, for Peter, the degree of devotion was going to cost him his own life. You know that I love you, says Jesus, or Peter says that to Jesus, and then Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. Lambs, while less mature than sheep, are more like sponges than sheeps are, or sponges doesn't make sense to you, they're more like parrots. Just to tease out the analogy, um, I'm a sheep. Yeah, cool, Baha or I'm a sheep, okay, good. Sheep are dumb animals. They wander off from the herd. They get stuck in fences. When they fall over, I have to do this for you. They can't get back up. I was on a, I couldn't stand last week and now I'm falling over. This is good stuff. And yet Jesus calls Peter and the, sorry, I, I do that. I yell sometimes. And yet Jesus calls Peter and the apostles to feed them. Because while sometimes sheep are unintelligent, they are precious to God. 
Hallelujah. We take this command seriously as leaders at COV. While we are not apostles, we believe one of the most important things we can do as leaders of the church of the living God is to teach this. To teach this, to read this with you. We primarily teach through books of the Bible because there is nothing more important than we can do than read and discuss the actual words of God with you. Now, if God is who he says that he is, if God actually in human form lived, died, and rose again, if these are his very words, how could we not attempt to take every chance we can to teach and equip and inform you on what God thinks and what he is like and what he says? So church, I have a challenge for you. One that I think is timely and is important. One that I think would be revolutionary for us if we, the church, just the people in this room right now and the people watching online, if we as a community of the children of God who call Church of the Valley their home, if you take me up on this, this will be revolutionary. Here it is. Are you ready? Let's dig into this in this coming year. Let's read the Bible. Don't just come on Sunday and read. Maybe read the passage you know we're going to study beforehand if you know what passages we're going to study because we'll be in Acts for a good chunk of next year. Read other passages of the Bible. Let's read it on our own. Let's read it with our friends. Let's read and discuss and apply what it says. I think some of us are afraid to read more of this book because we know we struggle with applying what we've already read. But I can't tell you the difference it would make if we as a church read and discussed more of the Bible together. We do not worship the book. We worship the author of the book. But the author of the book told us we could know the author of the book by reading this. So let's read this. Let's get into this. Let's study this and talk with each other about God's very words. If we read and cross-referenced and marveled, marveled and obsessed over what God says to his creation, you have no idea the difference it would make in the individuals who are brought together to be called the church of the living God. Make it your New Year's resolution if that's what you need. Remind yourself of the importance and power that can be found in being in the word of God on your own and with loved ones. See, it's written by your God, explaining who your God is in his very own words. So church, you ready? I triple dog dare you to read more of this. If you need a Bible reading plan, we'll help you. If you need recommendations on which letter in the 66 letters found known as the Bible to begin in, we'll answer that question for you. Ask us. If you need someone to chat with, about what you're reading and studying, let us know. We'll get you together with other people. We're going to begin community groups in just a few weeks. We're going to talk about God's Word, but let's be in the Word together. See, we want to look more like Jesus. We don't want to just wear His jersey. We want more people to love Jesus. We want more people to know the biblical Jesus, because in His name, true life is found. So let's go. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself 
and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. Here's my understanding of Jesus' implication to Peter. Peter, you say that you love me. Well, loving me will be harder than you think because I'm going away. And you and the other apostles, via the gift of the Holy Spirit, are tasked with proclaiming who I am. And Peter, you, you're a bit of a people pleaser, it seems like. You're going to be hated. You're going to be hurt. Eventually, Peter, you're going to be killed for this message that I am who I say that I am. So if you love me, Peter, count the costs. Because being my disciple, being my apostle, my ambassador, my representative, means you live for me now, not for yourself, not for your own self-preservation. I am your God, and you will follow me even unto death, even unto crucifixion. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And if I'm writing this, I would have been, and that was me. That's what John should have said, but whatever. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I'm not sure if Peter's intention here is to care about John's future or if Peter is just being competitive or what. But Jesus shuts down Peter's question. As Jesus makes clear that his intentions are his own. And we, church, don't always get to be let in on why God does what he does. But Peter and us, we need to trust God rather than question him. If God is God and we are not, then we exemplify our love and devotion by trusting him at his very word. As a Christian, trust is the target, more than attempting to understand why everything happens the way that it does. Verse 23, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? John is kind of meta here. He's writing on the island of Patmos where he has been exiled to die. And yet, he hasn't died yet, and he is writing, but he is making known that the intent was not that John wouldn't die, but that Jesus can do what he wants with those that are his. Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. John affirms his own writing. He swears by it, if you will. He testifies that what he has written down is true and is from him, and that he was an eyewitness to what was written. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. You may be thinking, how much more could Jesus do in three years of ministry? Or even 33 years of life? Well, 
real quick, there's a Bible in front of you, you have a Bible that you brought, or there's a Bible on your phone. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Would you turn with me, it's not going to be on the screen, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? Just real quick, John chapter 1, it's on page something, I didn't look it up on our, in our Bibles, I have no idea. John chapter 1, go to the middle of the Bible, go to the right, it's right before Acts, and it's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, here's how John begins this book that we started three and a half years ago. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, Spoiler if you missed it, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that John speaks of is Jesus. Here's my point. Jesus has always been. We are going to celebrate in a few days Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary, and that is beautiful. It's a wonderful story, but the reality is that Jesus, before anything was created, was there. He is the great I Am. Jesus is God with skin. Jesus, the Word who became flesh, has been involved since the beginning of creation and even after His resurrection and ascension, which we will study more as we begin Acts next year, He is still involved in His creation to this very day. So may He get all the glory and praise and honor through our lives and our words and our relationships, especially as we prepare for Christmas to celebrate His coming. And Christmas isn't about candy canes or jolly old Saint Nick. It's, a God, it's about God with us, church. It's about Emmanuel coming and living among his creation, sacrificing his perfect life for our sinful one and rising from the dead, defeating sin and death for our benefit. That's the reason for the season, church. And I pray that each of us will dig deeper and more dependent, be more serious and bold about our faith for the glory of Jesus' name. So two challenges. The first one you've heard, read the Bible. Get equipped. Get to know your God better. It's the weirdest thing. Most of us know that we would benefit if we were in God's Word more to read it and to meditate on it, but the distractions of this world seem to win out. Stop letting the distractions of this world let win out. Put Facebook down. And if you're not older, put Instagram down. Put Snapchat and TikTok and Rub-A-Dub-Dub and whatever the next app is called down. And get in God's Word, because for thousands of years, this has pointed out who our God is. And we have the great, great benefit of studying this with each other and talking about what we're learning and holding one another accountable to put into practice what we've learned and to love God more and to love others more. Here's the other challenge. If there's a bingo card, there is a big... uh, uh, free bingo space at Christmas time. 
At Christmas Eve, you can, t- you can say Merry Christmas, you can say peace be with you, you can say Christian-type wordings to people and they don't run away or stiff-arm you. If you're going to be here on Christmas Eve, invite somebody. If you're not going to be here on Christmas Eve and you're traveling, invite someone anyway. Tell them, hey, I won't be there, but I'd love to see you go check out my church family. Invite them to Christmas Eve And more importantly, talk about your faith. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't be a 007 agent Christian. How was your Sunday? Oh, it was good. Garoppolo did all right. No. Man, I learned about Jesus on Sunday. You want to talk about that? No. Okay. (laughs) But be willing to bring it up. Worship team, would you come join me up here? Father, it is uh, such an honor to open up your word, such an honor to be with your people. God, what a privilege it is to have studied the book of John together as a community. Lord, I pray that none of us would feel like we've got it figured out. God, I pray that I would be back in John sometime soon next year, reading for my own personal development. God, I know how to feed myself to an extent, but I'm grateful for a church that can help me do that as well. And so, God, I pray that that would be the the consensus amongst our people, that we'd want to be in your word. We'd want to be reading it and putting it into practice for the glory of your name. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity we have as a community to be real about your word. Would you be blessed and honored as we praise you in song. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.